Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. This week, talking victory for Washington Democrats in 2020 with the chair of the Washington State Democratic Party, Tina Podlodowski. If you are looking to volunteer, organize, or even learn how to become a delegate, this show is for you. We also discuss the March 10th primary, and we try to clear up any confusion around the new ballot. Then, for those of us looking to make an impact in a swing state this year, but maybe can't get there in person, we talk with one of the creators of Postcards to Wisconsin, a volunteer-driven effort to ultimately send one million postcards to battleground states in the Midwest. We also talk this week with a nurse on the front lines of a three-day strike on behalf of patient safety at Swedish hospitals in the Seattle area. All that, and we have our weekly call to action. Stay with us. So because 2020 is going to be the most consequential election of our lifetimes, I thought we would check in with our friend Tina Podlodowski to get an idea of the state of play here in Washington. Tina, of course, is the chair of the Washington State Democrats, and we are so glad that you could join us. Hi, Tina. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. It's very exciting to have you. And I just want to get your thoughts generally just off the bat about the Democrats' game plan for 2020. And I thought a good place to start would be the race in the 3rd Congressional District. That's going to be getting a lot of the attention. We are looking at unseating five-term Republican Congresswoman Jamie Herrera-Butler. What are your top-line thoughts about this race? Well, it's a tremendous race, um, and I think a tremendous opportunity for Democrats to be able to win this race. If you look at the 2018 cycle, I think um, if we had had a little bit more time in 2018, Carolyn Long, our 2018 candidate, I think she could have won that particular race. We are really building momentum and support within that district. So in Congressional District 3, we think we have the opportunity to do exactly what we did in Congressional District 8 with Kim Schreier, which is to build off that momentum, win that particular race, grab another seat for Democrats, and instead of having a 7-3 democratically-led uh, delegation, make it 8-2, and two, and then let's see what we can do in Congressional Districts 4 and 5 as well. I like the sound of all of that. I wasn't planning on asking you about four and five, but mm-hmm. I'll just get your your general thoughts about that. I mean, we know how entrenched CMR is. Yes. Uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers. Mm-hmm. There's a she's the number four Republican in Congress. There's a lot of money that got thrown uh, her way in the 2018 race. Do you have any thoughts about how Democrats might operate in the fifth in, th- in this year's race? I think we learned a lot um, from Lisa Brown's race in 2018 about the fifth. And it's all about two things, really. It's all about door knocking and digital and making sure that we are out there talking and connecting to voters. You know, our case uh, wasn't necessarily as compelling as it could have been in this last cycle to say, dump Kathy McMorris Rogers um, to the voters that we tried to plead that case to. I think uh, another year or so of Trump um, has sort of led them to rethink that particular mm-hmm. position in terms of how it's impacted them. Everything from clinics and hospitals closing uh, and their health care just disappearing in the rural areas of the state to the economic issues that are related there to just this general um Uh, feeling amongst voters there who tend to be incredibly fair people that what Trump is doing, how he's speaking about things, how he's speaking about them and their neighbors is something that doesn't fly in their values. So I think we have another opportunity, certainly uh, in that area. And it affects both CMR as well as Dan Newhouse in the fourth, too. 
Yeah, I think there's a carryover effect mm-hmm. there. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out right. in the elections in both of those districts. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about the 8th. Mm-hmm. It is my district. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, Dr. Kim Schreier is going to be defending her seat. Uh, I looked on Cook's the other day. It says likely Democrat. What a difference two years make, right? Right, right. Yeah. So what can you tell us about uh, this race and, and your thoughts on it? So um, many kudos to everyone who's a part of Indivisible, a part of the Democratic groups, a part of all the other grassroots groups in the 8th Congressional District, because those are the people that won that race. You know, uh, a candidate does not win this alone. You you have so many people that are on your team. And we had incredible, dedicated people who learned everything about campaigning and really won this for Dr. Schreier. I think those same people are back and then some, because yep. it's not just about winning it again for Dr. Schreier that everyone wants to be able to do, but it's also winning in local races. It's also winning in some of the House and uh, Senate seats that we're trying to get back. It's keeping our great Democratic incumbents. So really what we've built is a coalition of incredibly smart, incredibly engaged citizen activists. And that's exactly what we had hoped to do as a Democratic Party in coalition with groups like Indivisible, is to build this coalition of incredibly dedicated, incredibly smart people who are not going to go away. So our values stand together on all of these issues, and we need to keep electing people who represent those values. You are talking to many of the frontline people right now uh, through this podcast, so uh, I know that they're hearing you on that. Uh, I do want to get your thoughts on some of the legislative races happening in the state, but first I will ask about uh, the 10th CD. Of course, Congressman Denny Heck is retiring. This means there's going to be an open race. Uh, who are some of the candidates in your mind that we should be looking out for? Well, you know, there's 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 a whole group of candidates that have declared at this point, um, former Tacoma Mayor Marilyn Strickland, uh, State Representative Christine Reeves, who stepped down from her seat to be able to run and give full-time attention to this particular race, uh, Phil Gardner, who um, worked for uh, Congressman Heck, um, and, a f- and a few other folks are still continuing to look at it and think about it. This is a district that is a definitely a Democratic district, so I think in many ways this might come down to uh, Democrats and that top true top true uh, top two aspect of what we do here um, both two Democrats coming through and giving folks a choice based on those candidates but I think we have terrific candidates kind of an embarrassment of riches around all of those different things um, from the left side of the party Joshua Collins uh, is somebody who is running in that seat as well so uh, people will have a great set of candidates to sort of kick the tires on understand um, who they are what they want what they can bring to a position like that and then what are they going to do with it? Because chances are somebody who's elected in that race could serve for a very long time. So what does the arc of what they want to accomplish look like? Because it can be tough for freshmen in Congress, right, to get done what they want to get done legislatively. Um, Great Democrats have used it as a bully pulpit uh, in a couple of different ways, but the legislative part can be difficult. So don't just look at what somebody's talking about and what they're espousing today. Ask them, how are they going to make it happen if they don't get it done in their first uh, term as a congressperson. I think it's a great way for people to think about the candidates as they begin to vet them and make their choice uh, in that district. So yeah, let's go ahead and shift over and talk about the legislative races in the state. Um, The strategy in 2018 was to run a Democrat in every district. I assume that's going to be the same strategy in 2020? That is the same strategy, and we're filling out each and every one of those candidate slots right now. So all 98 House districts or House seats that are up, uh, as well as I believe it's 24 Senate seats again in this cycle that we'll be going after. 
Are there any, because I know that these races, of course, need money, and with uh, attention can come money, are there any races that you would like us to maybe focus some of our attention on? So I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, sort of up and down the I-5 corridor and in eastern Washington. I'd be remiss to not talk about Lori Fagan, who's running running in the 4th Legislative District, which is currently held by Matt Shea. And And we will talk about him more in detail in a moment. So I'll just mention Lori now as someone who is an incredible candidate and would truly represent the people of the 4th Legislative District in that Spokane Valley. Um, Daniel uh, Gerbe, who just announced in the Walla Walla area, in the open seat in the 16th Legislative District for State Senate, Maureen Walsh is retiring. She is an incredible candidate for that area, comes with a wealth of agricultural policy, to, you know, 20 years experience in the State Department doing it, married to a wheat farmer, Walla Walla born and bred. Wow, um, all the way. A, yeah. All the way and a couple of great mm-hmm. candidates. But you look up and down the I-5 corridor, everybody, uh, look at Helen Price Johnson in the 10th Legislative District, uh, running for state senate there. Look at the two great folks who are running in the 26th legislative district for those House seats. Joy Stanford is back. Um, Sanford is back as well as um, Carrie Hesch, who's running in that seat. Um, terrific, terrific candidates. All of our candidates in the 19th. And then lots of different surprises all the way through. So the 25th, the 29th, the 19th, the 17th, the 18th, you know, and bringing back all of our great incumbents. There are tremendous opportunities all around the state of Washington. And of course, all the things that we've just talked about Mm -hmm. uh, require volunteers. And so I want to talk about uh, what sorts of volunteer trainings you're offering in 2020. So 2018 was Rise and Organize. What's on tap for 2020? So Rise and Organize is back for 2020. And it's sort of um, Rise and Organize on steroids. You know, Ah. we are doing a Rise and Organize training academy in every single county in Washington state um, over the next two months. So whether it's a Soton County, Wakayakum County, Pierce County, which is our first one that just kicked it off last Sunday. It was great. We had over 100 people in the room in Pierce County. We set up uh, a whole bunch of different neighborhood teams to continue to do this work. And people are pumped up about doing this work. What are people learning? You know, they are learning um, what it takes to run a campaign like this. What's a win number? How do you make sure that you're targeting appropriately so you're turning out our people as opposed to turning out Republicans? So using the data to do all of that. Although we do want everybody to vote. That's my disclaimer. No matter what side of the ticket you're voting on, we do want to turn out our folks and the importance of sort of three points in the cycle this year. We think we have three different campaigns this year. The first is something new, the March 10th presidential primary. We want everybody to vote in that primary. It's an easy ballot. You're voting either the Democratic side of the ticket or the Republican side of the ticket. You're ticking your choice for that. It's incredibly important to do because that allows us the opportunity to see who's voting on that Democratic side of the ticket. The second one is is our August primary. So we sprint from the Democratic presidential primary to the August primary. If you look back at data, people who vote in the August primary of a presidential year are 98% likely to vote in the general election. People who don't are down in the 60% area. So we are trying to sprint to get as many people to vote in the primary. Then we could sort of tick them off the box and say, okay, they're pretty much all set for the general. And then let's get to the low propensity voters, the new voters, people who... um, have just come on the voter rolls as a result of automatic
Democratic voter registration in Washington state, people in communities that don't necessarily vote. I mean, we, by November of 2020, we're going to have almost 600,000 new voters through automatic voter registration. That can swing a lot of races. It can swing a lot of races. And the good news is we want to make sure all those folks vote. The um, work that we need to do as, as a coalition, as a party, is to make sure that we know who those voters are right. and what their views are because they've never voted. We have no data on them. That's a lot of door knocks, conversations, and opportunities to get people engaged in this process. Well, you know, I was going to ask you about the psychology, the science of, you know, door knocking, phone calls, things like that. Uh, but I think you've just made the case. I mean, this is really what it's about. Making that human person-to-person contact, uh, it makes all the difference, I think, in terms of voter turnout. Something new that has come up this year is texting. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit. Because, I, and I will just say this, and I've, I've mentioned this before. Uh, I'm a bit of an introvert. I know others like me. Uh, And so, you know, I'm going to be out there canvassing, but I think uh, I can also be, and and people like me can also Mm -hmm. be doing the work, uh, you know, texting, uh, working on your phone, doing things like that. Talk a little bit about the efficacy that you've seen of texting. Yeah, absolutely. Texting is good for a couple of different things. Number one is to make sure that we're IDing folks properly and that the the cell phone number that we have actually matches the individuals because cell phone numbers turn all the time. So that's number one. Uh, Number two is to understand kind of where they're at for GOTV. And it's a great tool to drive people during that turn in your ballot process when we already know about them. It's also great to use something called relational texting to build up a relationship to ask folks, okay, hey, you're a new voter. Um, you know, Do you understand how to use the ballot? Can we help you with something? Are you interested in learning more? And start to build that relationship with folks. And sometimes that's a better way to do it than to, to knock on that individual's door to at least get that first contact sure. happening. And for us, we're trying to not just have one contact with folks, but have multiple contacts in multiple spaces, whether it's in person, whether it's online, whether it's via texting, whether it's via phone calls, and really building a relationship with voters. Ultimately, my belief is the only thing that cuts through something like Fox News spewing what they spew all the time is to have a personal relationship with that voter. And that's totally what agreed. we're trying to accomplish. And then engage people in the process so that they don't go away. 100% agreed on everything that you just said. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you mentioned that they're, they're going to be organizing academies all across the state. Mm-hmm. Where and when can people learn more? On so uh, our new website um, is just about to go live. So if they go to the new Washington Debs website, um, which is uh, wa-democrats.org, they'll have an opportunity to sign up for those and learn all about them and the different organizing academies. Um, as well, we'll have um, an election center that'll be up to talk to folks about the primary, how they might want to run for delegate, for state convention, or for even the national convention this year in Milwaukee. And that's WA Election Center, all one word, dot com. What, since you brought up the, the delegate issue, I've spoken to people who really want to explore the possibility of being a delegate. Can you kind of walk us through that process? How does one go from being you know, a citizen activist to becoming a delegate at the, the national level, the DNC? Sure. So there's two ways to do it. But initially, if you go to the WA org site, you'll be able to um, 
pre-register for legislative district caucuses because we're doing that to um, elect the 1,400 delegates that will go to the state convention in June. So it starts at the LD. It starts at the LD level okay. for the state convention in June. You pre-register and you can upload your name, information about yourself, a bit about your background. Because instead of just doing the 30-second speeches that some folks might have been used to in past years, we really want to be able to give everyone who turns up at those legislative district caucuses a good set of who these folks are. Are, what have they done? Why are they running for delegate? Their photograph, you know, all these things that can really help them make a decision around those things. So the legislative district caucuses um, end up with the 1,400 delegates that will then vote at the congressional district caucuses for the people that we're sending to national convention. Okay. So you can be an LD delegate and you can also run, but and you also have a vote. So that's an important thing to understand. At the congressional district caucuses, we will elect delegates, and that will be based on the proportions of people or that that uh, the presidential candidates get in the presidential primary that happens on March 10th. So just to take a step back, our presidential primary is not a winner-take-all primary. If one person gets the majority of the votes, they don't get all of our delegates in Washington state. They have to hit a 15% threshold in every congressional district, and then they get a proportion of those delegates um, that we then assign via the congressional delegate process. So, for example, if there were um, 10 delegates statewide that were eligible, just to make the math really, really easy, and um, four candidates each got uh, 20% of the vote in Washington state, those four candidates would each get that proportion of the delegates. So, okay. yeah, so that makes sense in, in that piece of it. Yeah. Okay, so I'm mm -hmm. glad that you brought up the yeah. primary for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. First, uh, I want to talk about the ballot, yeah. uh, because I know that there is some anticipated confusion mm -hmm. around the ballot. I think people are, this is the first time that we've uh, done a primary instead of a caucus, and so I was actually going to do a segment about uh, the new ballot, but you're here, and you're very knowledgeable, <laughs> so I, figured I would just ask you, so walk us through what people are going to see when they receive right. their primary ballot for, for the, the presidential primary. The new uh, the presidential primary ballot is probably the easiest ballot that folks will see um, in a long time, and it's great for first-time voters as well. So you'll get a ballot um, that will have two uh, sides to it. Um, one side will be red. That's for the Republican side, and you would check the box saying, I'm voting the Republican ballot and check the Republican candidate. Or, or the other side will be blue. It'll have the Democratic candidate. You'll check that I'm voting the Democratic side of the ballot and which Democratic candidate that you're voting for. That's it. Put it in an envelope. Couldn't be easier than that. And I understand that you do not have to declare a party preference. Well, people don't have to declare when they register to vote, but they do on the ballot and the envelope. Why is that? Um, they do because it's a party process and that it's um, part of the rules that we get from the different national committees in terms of the party process itself and how we do delegate selection and action plans. So you're only declaring uh, for the purposes of this particular election, which side of the ballot you're voting and whether you're voting the Democratic side or the Republican side. So in essence, since you can be a Democrat for five minutes, if you prefer you to call yourself an independent, and right. many people do, but if you want to participate in the primary, you know, you tick that box and, and just do it for the purposes of the time of your vote. That makes it 
far more open for a lot of folks to be a part of this. It doesn't require a party registration, which uh, you might have seen in 2016 in many of the primaries that happened, that party registration requirement was in place and you had to register months and months ahead. Um, New York was a great example of that and something that was very closed, that you had to register months and months ahead as a Democrat to participate in that primary vote. So this should be uh, very open for folks to be able to participate and we want folks to participate. Of we course. want to know who they're interested in. We want them to vote that ballot. And again, it's a super easy ballot for first-time voters yeah. uh, to be able to to take a look at and say, okay, I got this vote-by-mail thing down. I understand how it works. I will just ask, because I've had people uh, mm-hmm. ask me, mm-hmm. the party that you select on the ballot and then write on the envelope, this isn't information that locks you into party preference. No. It is not information that is stored by anybody. Um, you know, I will get a voter file as the state party chair of people who voted on the Democratic side of the ballot, and the Republicans get a voter file of people who voted on the Republican side of the ballot. Does it become part of public record? No. The public okay. record is that you voted in the primary. So that's only something that goes to the parties. And a lot of that has to do with if we get a whole bunch of candidates at um, (laughs) 14.73% and they want to be able to go back and validate who exactly is uh, voting and voting in these different areas, it gives us an opportunity if those presidential candidates want a recount to be able to know who we need to go back to and validate for a recount and do some ballot sampling to do that. Gotcha. I do want to ask you generally because we saw so much division in the Democratic Party in 2016, do you anticipate the same thing happening in 2020? It seems like we're seeing some of the signs happening already. And if so, how do we create unity around the eventual candidate? So I think you're seeing a couple of things happen because we're really getting into this process now with uh, the primaries um, uh, happening and the um, the last remaining few caucuses in Iowa and Nevada happening. And people, you know, they have a horse in the race, right? They either they like Senator Sanders or they like Senator Warren or they like Joe Biden or whomever they want. And so they're kind of fighting for their candidate around this. Um And I think that that's just fine. You know, be fair about the process and what you're saying and how you're saying it and doing it and vote for the person that you want. I think, though, most Democrats and and the party, uh, the work that we've done here in Washington state is getting to people to coalesce around who the nominee might be. The nominee might not be your first choice, might not be your second choice, might not be your third choice. But I think everyone's I don't know, even 10th choice is going to be way better than the person that we have in the White House and gives us an opportunity to make change and make movement forward. So it'll be interesting to see how that breaks out. And Washington State, because we're now using a presidential primary, because we're on March 10th, which is a week after Super Tuesday, now called Little Tuesday, um, (laughs) because there's a whole bunch of states, but it's us and Michigan that are the prizes in Little Tuesday. So Washington state matters more than ever before. And I would urge everyone to use their voices, you know, use those democratic values, get that progressive bent out there and vote, vote, vote for the candidates that you want. Could not agree more. So succinctly put, um, before I let you go, I do have to ask about Spokane Valley uh, Republican Representative Matt Shea. He, as we know, has been linked to white nationalist groups. The House released a report showing that Shea planned and participated in domestic terrorism, and they just really supported documents. Those documents contain names, home addresses, badge numbers, cell numbers of Washington law enforcement officers. I mean, this is 
This is just an extraordinarily dark revelation about one of our state's lawmakers. What are your thoughts? Um, well, I'm absolutely horrified and shocked by Matt Shea and his Dominion movement and everything that he's been doing as a domestic terrorist and, frankly, as a white supremacist as well. This is something that's been an open secret for a number of years that the Washington GOP has just sort of turned a blind eye to because Matt Shea um, was a part of their caucus. He raised money for them, all of these different things. It is completely shocking. I, um, for so many reasons, and boy, we can spend, you know, 10 podcasts talking about this, I think. Mm. The fact that um, if you were to think about the danger that Matt Shea is putting every single law enforcement uh, person personnel in uh, Washington state at risk in by yeah. essentially getting their information, their personal information, doxing them, you know, uh, with every single crazy white uh, right wing group that's out there. It's absolutely horrific. Anybody who cares about law enforcement and personal safety uh, should be shocked about that. And that's been a Republican talking point for a long time. That's right. right? Yeah. So the fact that the Republicans don't appear to be shocked about this in any way is deeply disappointing. But let's go beyond law enforcement. Let's go to the people um, in the state of Washington who disagree with his views that he's been doing this to for um, close to a decade, you know, in ruining their lives and, and really creating an atmosphere of fear and creating an atmosphere atmosphere of division all throughout eastern Washington. And in fact, Matt Shea is a leader in this national movement. You know, if something happens and um, and there's an element of violence behind it, you can rest assured that it's because of Matt Shea and his efforts that that's happening. So everyone should be just disgusted by this. Um, Everyone should be saying Matt Shea is a domestic terrorist. He should be expelled. More than that, Matt Shea, I believe, needs to be prosecuted. That's not something that I can do, but I do know that the FBI is looking at it. Other law enforcement are looking at it. But Matt Shea is sort of the worst of the worst in terms of, uh, I believe, the Republican Party and their connection to these sorts of groups. I will just ask you, why do you think Republicans aren't moving to vote him out? Because they would need, we need a two-thirds supermajority right. to get him out. All Democrats are on board. Yeah. Why, why do you think the recalcitrants on behalf of Republican House members? Well, we would need uh, nine Republican House members to cross the aisle to expel Matt Shea. That's similar to what's happening now at the national level and yeah. Republican senators uh, supporting uh, President Donald Trump, no matter what he says and does or how much damage he does to America, um, and not doing anything to cross the aisle uh, during these hearings hearings in the Senate, you know, not even to hear witnesses, for heaven's sakes. So it seems to me that the Republican Party, um, it, the nice way to say it would be it's um, it's lost its soul. I guess I would say it sold its soul to the devil. Mm-hmm. And the devil in this case are people like Donald Trump, like Matt Shea, who can marshal money and who can marshal um forces that are inappropriate in a variety of ways, who uh, do their things through fear and intimidation, who scare people, who are trying to scare people now, um, and they are viewing this as a way to retain their seats in office. I would say that's not what we're looking for in an elected official, that we're not, that's not what we're looking for in a human being, frankly, <laughs> to act in this sort of way. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that the Republican uh, state party chair, Caleb Heimlich, won't speak out against it. It's embarrassing that Kim Wyman, who's the secretary of state, who's the highest ranking Republican in Washington state in state office, will not say anything about it. To me, that speaks to the lack of values in the Republican Party in Washington state. We know what 
those of us who live in legislative districts with Republican House members can do, which is to call yes. and say, you know, we want you to uh, support the expulsion of Matt Shea. What can people who live in Democratic LDs do? Well, um, they could do the same thing in terms of making those calls happen. I think that that's important. They can let their Democratic legislators know that they are supported um, in this effort to get rid of Matt Shea. I think that that's incredibly important. And they can spread the word about all of these different documents and ask those questions as to what's happening. I think more things will happen between now and the end of the session uh, to reveal just who Matt Shea is and connections to other people within the Republican Party. I think it's important to continue to talk about that. And I think it's important to support candidates that are running against these folks. We talked about Lori Fagan in the in the fourth legislative district. Lori is a nurse practitioner. She's an amazing asset to the community. And frankly, not only is Matt Shea a domestic terrorist and a white supremacist, he's a lousy state representative. He hasn't <laughs> done anything for his district in the time that he's been in office. And frankly, there are more on the Republican side who are lousy state representatives and state senators who deserve to go and get good representation. So if you are in a safe district, you know, if you're in a deeply blue uh, Democratic district, yes, do your work in district, but figure out how to work in these other districts. We can connect you to that work. Um, Great places like Indivisible can connect you to that work. Swing Left, Sister District, all these other organizations that we work with. Code Blue Washington, who we love as well. Great organizations. Pick one that works for you, whether it's the party or not, and get to work and don't stop working until after Election Day in November. Well, Tina Potladowski, we could uh, obviously talk all day, but uh, thank you so much for the work that you do, and thank you for uh, joining us on the show. Thank you so much, and thanks to everybody who's been a part of this incredible family that you've put together on this podcast. Thank you. So on last week's show, we talked about how some people in Washington are wanting to travel to a swing state like, say, Wisconsin to volunteer on the ground and talk to voters about the 2020 election. And maybe that is you, but for whatever reason, you can't manage the time or resources. And if that is the case, you can join the many activists who are writing postcards to encourage people in Wisconsin to vote. The organization is called Postcards to Wisconsin, appropriately enough. And we talk with Reed McCollum. He's one of the creators of this project. Reed, thanks so much for joining us, man. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. So let's start here. I, I don't think for most listeners that I'm going to need to stress the importance of Wisconsin in this year's election, but just give us a refresher on why Wisconsin matters. I, th- I mean, I'd say that Wisconsin is on the very, very short list of states that are most likely um, to be the tipping point state, sort of if, if the election comes down to a single state. Um, Wisconsin is is perhaps the most likely state, or if not one of the very few that could be the pivotal state to determine the 2020 election. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Wisconsin or uh, possibly Pennsylvania or Michigan, all eyes are on that trio of states right there. So let's talk about postcards uh, as a form of voter outreach. So I'm curious how postcards stack up against, say, canvassing, phone banking, texting, things like that. Do you have data that you can share with us? 
Yeah, there is there is good evidence on the efficacy of postcards relative to other um, tactics to increase turnout. Um, there have been sort of you know dozens or hundreds of of controlled experiments that, just like a drug trial, truly do measure the the impact. And and just like a drug trial, you know, not all the the uh, how effective you know different forms of canvassing are relative to one another uh, very large very widely, depending on what type of canvassing you're doing, when you're doing it, whether it's uh, volunteers or paid canvassers. But broadly speaking, um, you know, I, I'm a huge advocate of door-to-door canvassing. It's kind of my favorite thing to do in life. I think of it as roughly uh, four times as effective on an hour-per-hour basis as writing postcards. The key is that you are writing postcards at a different time of day, um, and in some cases from states away from where you're going. Um, but I, you know, I live outside of Chicago and there are, you know, thousands of people writing postcards on a Tuesday evening or while they watch Rachel Maddow. And then, you know, we use that as a tool to encourage them to, um, to go canvassing on the weekend. Um, it's an organizing tool. It's not a zero sum game. Uh, it builds and it, it, it increases engagement sure. on their own. Um, postcards are also very effective if you write a lot of them, which is why we're aiming to write, uh, we're actually going to write over half a million of them to Wisconsin, uh, which, you know, the controlled studies and our evidence is that will increase turnout in the primary in Wisconsin by about 7,500 votes. Um, and that'll actually translate into about 45 additional voters um, turning out in November. We did an interesting controlled experiment in Illinois in 2018 that proved that when we increase turnout in a primary, there's a residual impact. And when you get people off the sidelines in the primary, many of them follow through and just on their own without you doing any other additional engagement, they will then vote in the general election as well. Well, that's tremendous. So there's a residual effect with voters. And then, like you say, there's also kind of a multiplier effect when it comes to volunteer engagement. So just a, a win across the board. I'm wondering where the idea came from to do these postcards. Well, I got involved in sending over 200,000 handwritten postcards um, through a grassroots organization, largely indivisible groups in the suburbs of Chicago that helped flip the congressional district in Illinois. So um, we followed the same model of printing the postcards and then mailing them to volunteers. And it was abundantly clear to me that that model of printing postcards for you know, 1.7 cents per postcard, and then sending them to, or to to volunteers that could write, you know, you know, at least 100 postcards. I mean, there are groups that are writing 30,000 postcards. Wow. Um, was something that's, I, mean, I do operations management professionally for my career. And it was clear to me that larger volumes scaled up more, uh, more easily, and it could allow us to write far more postcards overall than having individuals have to buy postcards sort of a few at a time. And it's not for everybody. Some people only really want to write 10 postcards at a time. Um, they love sort of decorating the entire card, including mm. the front, um, buying cards on Etsy. I encourage people to do all of that. Um, but if you have organizations where they're able to get 60 people to show up every Tuesday for three months, it gets very expensive to not only ask them to contribute stamps, but to ask them to shell out and pay 10 times as much for sure. postcards as well. Right. Well, so then walk us through how all this works. So in order to get the ball rolling, people go to postcards, the number two, wi.com. They can order postcards in multiples of 100. It is then the volunteer's job to 
fill out the address, and then they write a specific message. You have suggestions for messages that they can write on the postcards, right? Yeah, that's right. We, we mail the postcards for free along with the addresses that the volunteers um, will address, and they'll also write the message. And we're, um, we have four messages, and we're doing a controlled experiment, actually, to help refine which tactics for postcarding are most effective, because we all want the postcards to be as effective as possible. Yeah. Um, and we're testing short messages versus long messages, um, and, then, and then a traditional get out the vote message against something that's called social pressure, which kind of encourages voters to, um, to vote based on the idea of letting them know that it's actually public record, whether or not you vote, not who you vote for, but, but whether you vote. Um, and those kinds of messages, um, can be four times as effective actually. And it's, um, you know, it's something that we're experimenting with volunteers and handwritten postcards that hasn't been done before. Um, but it, it's kind of cool because this is the largest, um, controlled experiment for handwritten postcards ever. Um, and it'll help us make them even more effective as people want to continue to write them, um, you know, after the election. Well, that's fascinating. And you're actually getting in, into my next question, which is, uh, where you are getting the names and that essentially means that you are getting them from registered voter lists, I assume probably connected with Van or something like that. Um, and therefore, you can track and see who gets what postcards and what message resonates with them. And so uh, that's something I'm going to want to follow up with you on to see uh, what, your, what your data shows after that. But yeah, give us an idea of how these voters are selected. Yeah, so, so, so you're right. It is, um, you know, for people that are familiar with the data applications that are used, it's, it's Vote Builder. Um, and, you know, we have that through a data partner that also does a lot of the behind the scenes voter targeting and message work for organizations. A lot of people on your, on your podcast have heard of like Indivisible, Swing Left, Public Citizen, all of, you know, not all, but some of the organizations um, that are not part of any particular political party, but are progressive that are on the left that still want to target voters um, because the resources to do that targeting and to pay for those programs are, are quite expensive, especially mm -hmm. if you are going to target um, voters based on, you know, um, whether we think they share, share our values, how likely they are to, to vote for candidates that we want to see elected. I, I mean, I think the question that's on people's minds is, do we know how the people who are going to receive these postcards will likely vote? Are they Democrats? Are they are they moderates? Do we know? So we um, we know that so there is no party registration in Wisconsin, um, but the tools that we use, which are the same that political parties use and these groups use, allow you to sort of profile um based on demographics, really, um, how likely people are to support, um, you know, different parties or, or candidates that support certain issues. So because we're a 501c4 organization, so social welfare organization, um, you know, we do sort of frame it that way. And, um, and, and, and that is our goal is to increase turnout amongst voters who share our values that we, that we feel confident will support candidates that we want to see elected. Yeah. Um, you know, that, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, I think the main uh, concern that I, that I think a lot of people would have is, you know, you're uh, encouraging people generally to vote. You're not encouraging people to vote for any particular candidate. And I think it might give people pause if they thought that they were encouraging, say, um, a Trump voter to, uh, to, to turn out to the polls. 
Yeah, it, it's there, there are statistics that go into it, and so basically, you know, eighty-five percent or more of the of the people who we will get to the polls that wouldn't that we wouldn't get to the polls otherwise are extremely likely to um, to support um, the values that we all share. So, you're, as you said, you're well. No, and that's 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 good to know. Uh, so, you said your goal is sending half a million postcards. So, where are you at right now with the goal? So, we launched seven weeks ago, and I was also right over the holidays. And in the first seven weeks, we have over four hundred and ten thousand postcards ordered, and wow. we've we've expanded our goal, and um, we we now hope that we can get to six hundred thousand before um, before the end of March when all the postcards need to get mailed. It's been in phenomenal in terms of demand for people that that want to participate and help write postcards to Wisconsin. There've been over 1600 people that have signed up from 45 states. Um, and, and, you know, that caught us a little bit off guard, but it's good. And we're pretty caught up in terms of um, shipping the postcards out. We're, we're entirely um, led by volunteers. There is no staff, there is no organization, um, even Indivisible Chicago, which is the, um, the the organization that we're sort of organizing this under the banner of is led 100% by volunteers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, so, as yeah, as, as any indivisible member will uh, tell you, yeah, there's there's no money changing hands, uh, despite all of the stories about George Soros handing out uh, right. you know checks on the front lines. Uh, it's not happening. I, I haven't gotten mine. <laughs> I haven't gotten mine either. I'm waiting. Uh, so what it really sounds like you've tapped into something uh, here, and uh, so that's just phenomenal. I know that there has been a change in date. You sent out an email, but I want to make sure that people who are participating get this, particularly because most people listening here are here in Washington. We're on the West Coast. Um, initially, the date to send out postcards was April 1st. That has changed. What is the date now for people on the West Coast? Yeah, so the, there, we, we are actually sending a quarter million voters two postcards each. Um, and the way that we want to do that is not for them not all to get them at the same time. We, we also want them to get them before the election. And if you mail a postcard on April 1st from Washington State, it probably will not get there until Election Day or, or maybe a day after that. So yeah. if the instructions that people get when they order postcards say April 1st, they should mail them between the 25th and the 26th of March. Um, and if they don't remember that, just mail it in time to get there. The other half, of basically, the, the I call it wave one, um, those instructions are very clear, and they basically say, um, you know, mail them March 20, 20th or 21st, um, and those, those also refer back for people that ordered postcards sort of in both waves, um, that if you received previous postcards that said April 1st, mail them between the 25th and the 26th. So it doesn't have to be exact. Um, it's just you don't want them to get mailed much earlier in March because the vast majority of the voters who will vote because of a postcard are going to vote on election day. And if they get it two weeks ahead of the election, they're going to forget about the postcard um, by the time election day rolls around. And because Wisconsin has same day voter registration, um, there is not a scenario where a voter will find out and decide to vote after they're after they are sort of able to to go through the process to vote. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like there's a sweet spot in there that you want to hit. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about uh, something that happened in December, uh, a county judge in Wisconsin ruled that some 234,000 people had to be removed from voter rolls. And then this month in January, an appeals court blocked that ruling. I'm wondering where things stand right now. 
So um, my understanding of where things stand is that it's unlikely that any voters in Wisconsin will get purged and that'll resolve itself in the courts before um, before the election. Um, I, th- I think some people think that we're writing these postcards to purged voters or that's sort of our, hang- our, our angle. We, we actually launched right around the same time that that initial story um, came out. If anybody does get purged, they were likely a registered voter when we selected our, our set of people that we're going to mail the postcards to. So even if people are purged, um, there's a good chance they would get a postcard from us, which does have the best website to confirm your registration status. The most important way um, to to make sure people who, who might get purged find out is to get them to go to the polls in April. Um, because of same-day voter registration, they might have to go home and get IDs in April, but they'll sure as heck know that they aren't registered and have plenty of time to do that before November, which is the most important time um, for them to go to the polls as a registered voter. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Um, you know, we've mentioned the website a couple of times here, but I will just allow you to do it one last time because I know that you are looking for donations. As you, as we've said, these things don't, uh, they don't run for free. And uh, I think a little goes a long way with a campaign like this. So where can people go to both order postcards and to make donations? Yep. Um, to both order postcards and make donations, you can go to www dot postcards the number two the numeral wi.com and from there we, you can order free postcards and because nothing is ever free you can also opt to chip in and help us um you know fund fund the postcard effort because it is entirely individual donors and small dollar donors that are that are powering our ability to print these postcards yeah reed mccollum is one of the creators of postcards to wisconsin reed thank you so much man Thank you. I appreciate it. On Monday, nurses and healthcare workers with Services Employees International Union 1199 Northwest began a strike of Swedish hospitals at locations in Seattle, Edmonds, Mill Creek, Redmond, and Issaquah. That is the sound of a picket line at Swedish Hospital in Issaquah. I spoke with Catherine Chamberlain. She is a charge nurse on the General Surgical Unit. You will hear the rain on my umbrella as we talk. It was raining quite a bit, and it was very cold, but the nurses were still out there in force. I asked Catherine, to talk a bit about the conditions that healthcare workers are concerned about. Right now, um, Swedish is not providing us what we need in regards to staffing so that we can adequately do our jobs in a safe way. That's not only safe for the patients, but also safe for our staff. And so, you know, we're not here over wages or benefits. Like, healthcare workers don't strike easily. We're here for our patients and for safety, and, and that's it. So, Um, You know, we've been at the bargaining table for 10 months and unfortunately Swedish Providence can't make any guarantees or commitments to safer staffing and they're not willing to put anything in the contract that would um, allow us to do our jobs better and safer. Why do you suppose that is? Well, there's a financial piece to it for sure, Um, but they, I think that's a control piece also. So, um, you know, we're the frontline care workers and we know what's best for our patients and for us as staff members. And, um, you know, they're just not listening to us and which is unfortunate because, you know, I think maybe today while they're in there and we're out here, they're maybe getting a taste of what we deal with day in and day out. And it's scary and it's not good for our patients. And, um, you know, I think they're reluctant to make commitments for financial reasons, yet that's really what 
these patients need. And, you know, maybe it's time for them to reevaluate how they distribute what finances they do have. And maybe some of those finances can go towards patients and not to, you know, the top 10 executives at Swedish. So... Well, if that were to happen, what are some of the specific things that you would like to see change in terms of the way that uh, patient safety is taken care of at Sweden? So right now, as it stands, when we go on break, um, we have to pass off our set of patients to another nurse while they still have their set of patients. So we say that, you know, we look at ratios when we're talking about safe staffing, and right now we're doing like a one to five, on, on my unit at least, a one to five ratio. So then when someone takes a break, then a nurse is responsible for 10 patients while another nurse is on break. And we've said that the safe, what Swedish or Providence is saying is the safe ratio is one to 10 or one to five. And then all of a sudden we're one to 10 and that's okay during the breaks. I mean, you never know what's going to happen, you know, in the hospital and who's to say that my patient isn't going to go downhill on a, on my 45 minute break. And so, you know, it's just not safe for, for us to do that. And, you know, let alone maybe more than one person at one time taking a break. So what break nurses would do is that nurse, they only come in during break times and they just are simply there to cover staff while they take their breaks so they can do it safely. And so staff members can get rest. It's not safe for us to be going 12 hours without going to the bathroom or, you know, eating something and, you know. Is that really expected of you? It happens. It happens all the time. And, you know, or we, we go on a break and we get interrupted and so our break gets cut short and Providence will say that it's not expected, but nurses, you know, really care about our patients and we don't feel safe leaving our patients. And so that's the commitment that we make as healthcare workers because our patients come first. So at the end, because we don't have break nurses, that's what ends up happening, which is unfortunate. And so if we had break staff, then they would be covering us. So they would just take that one to five ratio over because they wouldn't be adding it on top of their own set of patients. Anything else in terms of things that you personally would like to see change in working conditions for the safety of patients? Yeah, so um, I don't work on a quote-unquote dangerous floor, but um, my a lot of my brothers and sisters work in the ER or here at Issaquah we have a unit that's locked where a lot of our patients dealing with psychiatric issues are placed. And um, for starters, I'd love to see metal detectors in the ER. And I mean, there's plenty of other hospitals around that have metal detectors, so this is not a novel idea. And it would really keep our patients safe because, you know, patients come in with weapons and we have no idea. And and then, you know, then they make it up to the floors and, you know, it's just a dangerous situation. And um, so metal detectors would help our ED, our frontline, you know, first in the door care workers feel safe. And then that would trickle upstairs. Um, and then also more security, so also in the ED. So what happens when we have a couple security guards that staff this hospital in particular, you know, at all times, but if something happens inside the hospital, like a code, a code gray where we have like a combative patient, for example, those security guards basically leave their post, and so the security in the ED is non-existent, or um, like in our, um, our medical specialty unit, uh, either A, it takes a long time for the security to get there if there's an issue, or there's, there's no security there. And what I would like to see is maybe more security in the ED and then a security guard in our medical specialty unit. Um, so that's more regarding staff safety. Um, for patient safety, the other things I'd like to see are, um, you know, uh, designated ratios. So right now we don't say that you can only take so many patients per staff member. Yeah, there's national standards that say that, that know that certain ratios are safer for patients and for staff. And we'd really like to have some language uh, 
surrounding that. What kind of ratio would you like to see? Well, we'd like to um, be near what they do in California. So in California, it's not in their contracts because it's legislated. So they have state laws that designate how many uh, what the ratio should be. And for my unit, a one to four ratio is what we feel is safe. But that's assuming our NACs also have ratios too. Um, NACs? Uh, nursing assistants. Nursing assistant certified is what that is designated, yeah. So um, so I'd like to see ratios for our NACs as well, because the nurse ratio doesn't work unless you have your um, supporting staff with safe ratios also. So this strike is supposed to last through Friday. Right. Are you aware of any plans to go beyond that? Well, we don't know, unfortunately. Um, we, our plan is to show up back to work at 7.30 in the morning on Friday and be prepared to work and come back to our patients. Um, you know, Providence is telling us that they've hired these replacement workers and they've contracted with them for five days and that they're talking about locking us out and not allowing us to come back to work. What will you do if you get locked out? Um, we're not sure yet. Um, we kind of, we don't know what's going to happen and, you know, the bargaining team will come together and decide what our next steps would be if they lock us out. Um, we don't anticipate them locking all of us out. They'll probably let some care workers back to work, but not all of us. So, you know, it's probably going to be an in-the-moment decision, but, you know, we want to express that we're ready to come back to work and, you know, we only, um, wanted to be away from our patients for three days and, uh, we're ready to come back on Friday and, you know, it's really not fair to lock out some and not others and it's not fair to the patients to deny them two more days of good care so um you know i from what i'm hearing on the inside it's you know a little chaotic in there and we'd like that to end for our patients on friday morning when we come back to work Catherine chamberlain is a charge nurse on the general surgical unit at swedish hospital in issaquah So it is time for this week's call to action. And uh, as we have discussed with both Speaker Lori Jenkins and Senator Lisa Wellman, the legislature has the opportunity to get more done on gun safety in this year's session. There are two items up for consideration in the House Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee, HB 2240 and 2241. 2240 has to do with high capacity magazines, the type that we have seen in just about every mass shooting in recent memory. This bill would limit the capacity of the magazines that can be sold or possessed in the state to 10 rounds. That sounds more than reasonable to me. And 2241 would ban the sale and possession of assault weapons, guns like the AR-15 and the AK-47. Both of these bills are set to be heard by the Civil Rights and Judiciary Committee in the House. So if you are in the 13th, 28th, 31st, 33rd, 41st, or 45th, call your representative and ask them to vote 2240 and 2241 out of their committee. And Representative Christine Kilduff is the committee chair, so you can call her directly even if you don't live in her district. And when you do, you might mention that in the case of 2241, seven other states have passed similar legislation, and five federal courts have upheld the constitutionality of these bans, and the Supreme Court has allowed these decisions to stand. Next, if you are looking to do some lobbying on behalf of immigrant rights in this year's session, and we hope that you are, the Washington Immigrant Rights Solidarity Network is hosting their Immigrant Refugee and Advocacy Day in Olympia on Wednesday, February 
5th. Attendees will be lobbying for, among other things, a measure that would prevent license plate and facial recognition, a bill that would prevent immigration arrests in or near courthouses, as well as a measure looking to end private detention facilities in the state. To get a full list of the bills and to register, go to waisn.org slash 2020 hyphen advocacy hyphen day. That link will be available at indivisiblepodcast.org. And finally, we land where we often do as of late on impeachment. So as of this recording, Senate leader Mitch McConnell is saying that he does not have the votes to block witnesses and documents in the Senate impeachment trial. Is this a bluff? Who knows? He has said things like this before, and then somehow he magically whips enough members to get his way. The one thing that we can do to keep things tipped in our favor is to make calls. Specifically, sign up for a shift with Indivisible's hub dialer to call constituents in states with fence-sitting senators and ask them to contact their senators. I will make something clear that I have not, when I have talked about this in past shows, the people that you're going to be put in touch with through the hub dialer These are our people. These are people who have attended the Women's March, maybe they're members of Move On, or even Indivisible. They are more than likely going to be very receptive to your call. As we watch the Senate trial, I hear people expressing a lot of frustration that we cannot do more here in Washington to impact the outcome. This is a meaningful way to take action. I will stress that despite what some people are posting on social media, it really doesn't do any good to call the offices of Martha McSally or Mitt Romney or Susan Collins or even Doug Jones or Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema as much as we would like to. It is far more effective to encourage our fellow progressives in those states to make the call. So I will have a link to the hub dialer for you at indivisiblepodcast.org. As Thomas Paine famously said, these are the times that try men's souls. And I will just update that to say that they are times that try women's souls, too. So if you're feeling like you need to take some action, maybe order some postcards, go to an Olympia lobby day, do a shift on hub dialer, and just ultimately know that you're not alone, right? And, you know, also, maybe step away from the impeachment trial for a bit. I, I know I sure as hell had to. Go binge some Netflix, eat some ice cream, go for a bike ride, uh, you know, if and when it never stops raining. Just do what you have to do to keep your head together. Take some action, take some time off, do whatever you got to do so that you can come back ready to do what we have to do to win in 2020. And that is it for this week's show. You can find links to everything that we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. To get in touch, you can email us at indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to Tina Podlodowski and Reed McCollum. Special thanks to Will Casey and Michelle Solberg. Extra special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.